you know, I remember hearing the story of a, a very seasoned preacher who'd had a years of successful ministry. I mean, he was respected. He was a published author. He, you know, preaching went out to millions on TV. And when he got towards the, the later years of his preaching, somebody asked him, said, what is the most profound thing you have learned in all this time of ministry? What, you know, if you really had to pass something along, what would it be? And he looked at him and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, we were just singing that, and I couldn't help but think of that because it's, that's what it is. You know, the gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It all comes back to that over and over and over. And, you know, we never outgrow the need for the gospel. You know, Martin Luther said, preach the gospel to yourself daily because we all need it. We never outgrow the, the need for saving faith. The same faith that saved you is the same faith that's going to walk you through the door of heaven. It doesn't change. So this week, we kind of turn a corner in our story on the road to redemption. You know, we, we kind of saw, you know, early in Scripture, things were okay, right? I mean, it worked out for two whole chapters. Two chapters in Genesis, everything was good. And then sin entered the picture, and everything just kind of blew up, and it wasn't good. And there was problem after problem, and, and would we ever get there? And then this guy Abram comes onto the scene, and something interesting happens. Things change because he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. It wasn't anything that he did. He didn't, he, he didn't do things better than people before him. He wasn't more intelligent than people before him. What did he do that was different from everyone else? He simply believed God. Now, doesn't that seem amazingly simplistic? The chaos that had already been created. By the time you get to Abraham, the world has been flooded. God has limited man's years to 120 because he's so evil that he says, I'm not going to contend with man forever. I mean, nature itself, creation itself has now been altered from its original plan because it's so bad. And now Abraham comes along and he just simply believes God and God is like, thank you. That's what I've been looking for. Just someone to believe what I'm going to say. Just believe me and then walk in it. So after Abraham, the history of God's work continues. New chapters, new people, Moses and the law come along and, and the people are taken out of Egypt and, and a great people is established. And does that bring about finally the, the redemption of earth and, and everything work out? You know, now we've got God's kingdom because we have his law, we have his people, all of that. Does that work out? No. In fact, the law, in that weird sense as we talked about, made things worse. Because now people were tempted to sin because they knew what righteousness was. And so sin pushed them to rebel. And so they continue as a people and they still, they're a, they're a stiff-necked people. They can't seem to figure out left or right with God. And, and they're up and then they're down. And then they finally say, we need a king. If we have a king, we will be good. Everything will work. God says, you don't need a king. And they said, no, we need a king. He says, okay. So they get a king, and he's a colossal failure. King Saul just face plants. And so then God says, you know what? I'm going to pick the next king. Okay, y'all picked that one. Didn't work out. I will pick the next one. 
And he picks a guy named David who is a, a shepherd boy. He's not leadership material in the worldly sense. But God says he's a man after my own heart. And then he makes a covenant with David, the same covenant that he made with Abraham. That all nations will be blessed through your offspring. And he repeats that same covenant. And David, you know, he, he, he's very faithful and he loves God and he ascends to the throne finally after conflict with Saul in which he's faithful to God and God sees him through. And when he gets to the throne, you finally have a man on the throne. He's a man after God's own heart. And what happens? The same thing that happened with everyone else. He face plants. He fails. He can't overcome the temptation that's inside of him. He can't overcome the sin that is inside of him. And his reign is actually marred by, by kind of failure after failure. You know, we, we lift King David up as one of the models in the Old Testament. Do you ever notice that once he gets to the throne, it doesn't work out so well for him? His life before was incredibly faithful. His life after he's on the throne, eh, kind of so-so. But God still honors his promise and continues to move things forward. And so you get Solomon who comes to the throne. And he says, God, give me wisdom so that I can, I can lead your people. And God says, I like that prayer. So he grants him wisdom and he grants him peace. And you have this kingdom of Israel now that is unlike any the world has seen before or since. There's peace. There's prosperity. The temple is built and God fills the temple and it looks like it's going to happen. We're at this high point. It's like everything's working. We're going to finally have God's reign on earth and it's going to happen. And what does Solomon do? He decides to get married 700 times and keeps 300 concubines in reserve. And what does it do? It makes him crazy. Can I get an amen? The man loses his mind by the end of his life. He goes nuts. And so we have again a crash. And so then after that, the kingdom splits and you have... Prophets then come on the scene who start to preach and, and talk about the things of God with a fiery zeal that nobody has seen before. And, and will the prophets be able to preach the kingdom of God in as he, they tell the people about their failures and the greatness of God? And you have these moments like Elijah just comes in and he calls fire from heaven. And I mean, it's, it, it's these dramatic moments. And what happens? Everybody listens. And they fail again. And it's like every attempt to bring about the kingdom of God on earth, to really get the people to honor God and to follow him, it's like they start off great and then they just crash over and over and over. And what is the problem? The problem is that everybody involved inherited the sinful nature of Adam. Every single one of them. And so no matter how hard they try, everybody has to deal with this temptation to sin inside of them. And when they fail to overcome the temptation inside of them, it leads to what? External exercises of sin, which then cause destruction. 
They cause problems. It caused pain and suffering and death to everybody around. And, and it, it's just a repeating circle of history. As you read the Bible, as you read just world history, you see the same pattern repeat itself over and over and over. And yet God continued to promise throughout all of that that the day of the Lord is coming. That the time is coming where his kingdom will be established. And if you're really following along in the Old Testament at that point, you're wondering, how is this ever going to happen? We see the people go into captivity. We see them come out. We see them rebuild. And then what? They face plant again. And then you get to the end of the Old Testament. And Malachi, the final prophet, speaks. And then God goes silent. For 400 years. 400 years of history in which God just doesn't say a word to humanity. And then we have the Christmas story. And Jesus is born and it's announced to, to, to shepherds. And, and we've had, you know, we know the Christmas story in here. And then you have another prophet show up. John the Baptist who starts preaching some wild things. The guy eats grasshoppers. So he's, he's kind of crazy-eyed. He's kind of crazy-haired. He's wearing a garment of camel hair out in the desert. And he's baptizing everyone. Now understand, in that time, baptism was reserved for proselytes, Gentiles, who became Jewish converts. That's what baptism was about. But John comes along and says, oh, no, everybody's got to do this. Everybody needs to be baptized because you have got to repent of your sins. You've got to turn away. And what did John do? He brought sin to the forefront. Instead of we're going to bring the kingdom. We're going to bring the kingdom. John comes along as the final and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, he is. He is the great. He is the pinnacle. And what does he preach? He says, repent because the kingdom of God's coming. And this, the message gets different all of a sudden. Because he brings sin to the forefront and he says, you got to repent. you got to turn away from sin because when the kingdom gets here, your sin and the kingdom are not going to mix. And the Jewish people look at him and say, what are you talking about? We're the children of Abraham. And he says, no, 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 don't say we're the children of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. You better repent. Because the axe is laid to the root. You, you're all about to go. God's done with this nonsense. Something new is about to happen. And then Jesus shows up. And John sees him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's baptized. And the Spirit descends upon him. And something starts to happen. And we take a turn in the story here that is unexpected. And yet makes total sense if you look at the bigger picture of what is happening. You see, we had the first Adam, right? The first Adam came and he face planted and the entire world suffered because of it for thousands of years. Because we all inherited his sin nature. But remember, we talked about. God would provide what we needed most, right? And so what do we have here? We have the second Adam. 
Jesus is the second Adam. He's representing all of humanity just as we were represented in Adam. So Jesus comes along and he's going to represent all of humanity. Now, some people don't think that's fair. I've heard people complain about that. They're like, why am I found guilty for Adam's sin? Why am I, you know, no, you're not found guilty for Adam's sin. You're found guilty for your own sin. It's just Adam set the course for everyone. And once we dip below the line of sin, we can't do anything ourselves to pull ourselves back out. And so if we need redemption, if we've got to get back above the line, that means it can't start with anybody who started out below the line. Somebody above the line of sin, somebody without sin, has to be the one who starts this process. But to stay above the line, if he's going to represent all of us, what has to happen? He has to overcome the temptation that every other human being has fallen to. He has to chart a new path. And so, listen, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, it says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, we're represented by one or the other. That's just the way it works. You're either going to be represented by Adam and his fall, and you're going to follow in his footsteps, or you are represented by Christ and his righteousness, and you follow in his footsteps. It's one or the other. And so the author of Hebrews puts it this way. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But listen to this. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus was tempted in every way that you are. And I'm going to even put out there, he was tempted in ways we're not. The temptation that Jesus endured and overcame is far stronger, far more intense, far more personal than what we will ever face. Now, I want to ask you this question right now. And everybody knows the answer, but I want to put it out there. Which is harder? To give in to sin or to resist sin? Which is harder? The struggle with continuing, the struggle with sin or the struggle to resist sin? Which is harder? You see, when we talk about Jesus resisting sin and that he was without sin and that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, I don't think we even begin to imagine the battle that raged in his heart and mind to stay focused on the word of God, the things of God, to honor God at every single moment. He never had a thought get away from him. Now, how many of us can say that? <laughs> yeah, I'll just, you know, sit on my hands. He never had a thought get away from him. 
even while he was at the cross and the Roman soldiers are using the cat of nine tails on them, he did not have one fleeting thought of hatred for that human being. Think of that. He was without sin. Which means what he did is something nobody else could do, and that's why he is the second Adam. He represents all of humanity because he started a new thing for everyone. And so in order to do that, he had to face temptation. Now, I want you to know something is we can learn from temptation. We've got to know what temptation is. If we're really going to understand Jesus and his temptation, we've got to know what temptation is. Okay? So here's the sting. I want to prepare you because we, we like to compartmentalize, right? Now, how many have ever heard the phrase, you know, the devil made me do it? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, devil didn't make you do anything. Not one thing in your life has the devil made you do. Has he deceived you? Yeah. Now, the reason for that is because we don't believe the word of God. It's not because God's word failed or anything like that. It's still on us. But the devil didn't make anybody do anything. In fact, listen to James 1.14. But each person is, what? Tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what? Desire. So who is responsible for temptation in our lives? Go ahead and raise your hand. Me. Me. Sin happens because I want something that goes against the Word of God, that goes against the nature of God. Or I pursue something that is good in a way that goes against the Word of God. You know, you can want something good and go about it the wrong way. See, that's what Paul talks about in, in Romans 7 when he says, I'm a wretched man. And he says, I don't understand myself. I know what I want to do, but I do the things I don't want to do. And that what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And he says, I see the law. I see what's good. And I want to do it, but my flesh fails and I don't do it. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? Now, you know, in the Roman Empire, that body of death phrase right there, it's way more vivid than what we know today. In the Roman Empire, if you were found guilty of murder, this is going to disturb some of y'all, I'm just going to let you know. If you're found guilty of murder, sometimes they would just strap the dead body to a person to make them carry it around. And it was the body of death that they had to carry around with them, and it would eventually kill them because, you know, that's gross. But... That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's like. I've got this body of death that's strapped to me. I can't get rid of it. And what is that? It's sin. And he says, who's going to save me from that? And he says, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who frees us from this. The temptation is only there because of our own desires. Now, I don't say that to condemn because temptation itself is not sin. Let me repeat that. Satan will, will get in your head and he will guilt you and accuse you because that's who he is. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what the word Satan means is accuser. 
and he will accuse you of failure when you've actually not even failed. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the process we go through of understanding our own desires and what we really want. Temptation always has the same, let's put it this way, temptation always has the same end goal, and that is to reject the fatherhood of God in some way. And so, when temptation happens, it it arises strictly from our own desires. How many of you right now are tempted to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Yeah, we got a few. I, I, I'll be honest. Look, I've bungee jumped before. I get it. Okay? 175 feet attached to my ankles. I would do it again. Because I'm that kind of person. <laughs> but how many of you in here are like, you're nuts? You're like, no. No, you don't do that. See, God made gravity. And you don't play with gravity. You see, you're not tempted to do that. Why? Because it's not a desire that you have. But each person, what does he say? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So what tempts you in life arises from your own desires. Well, can you learn from that? Yes. We can learn what it is we really want in life. We can learn what it is we think we're entitled to. We can learn where it is we want to assert ourselves against the process God has us in. Like Paul said, you can even want the right thing, but go about it the wrong way. So God says, I want you to do this. And you're like, okay, I'll take it from here, God. And he says, no, you don't take it from here. I will take it and you follow me. Oh, but I I know what I'm doing. And God's like, be my guest. Go ahead, and when you fall on your face, when you face plant, I'll be here to help you back up. But we can learn from temptation because temptation always kind of has some same things. It always comes from our own desire, and it comes from our own identity, okay? Identity and desire. Think of those two things all the time at the core of temptation. That's where Satan is going to try to deceive you and tempt you. That's where he's going to throw things is at the core of your desire and your identity, who you are. And he wants to confuse you about who you are. Now think about Adam and Eve for a second, okay? We're going to go back again. Adam and Eve. God knows when you eat of that, you'll be like him. Who did he, he tempted him at what? Their desire, I want to be like God because I'm not like God. What was their identity? Less than God. And Satan just poked at that and said, you could be more. Here they are, king and queen of all of creation. And yet it's not enough. Why? Because they saw an identity for themselves that wasn't true. Had they known who they were and understood their identity well, they would have rejected the claim that they could be like God. Because, no, I'm not God. I can't be God. I will never be God under any circumstance. This is an impossibility. I am the creation. He is the creator. And we will never be the same. And so identity and desire come to the core of all of it. And so Jesus, too, was tempted at the points of his identity and his desires. And this is something that's missed a lot 
when we look at the temptation of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I love how many phones I see go up now. Like, really, I'm on the Bible. Y'all know later I see when you checked in on Facebook at 11 o'clock. And I see that. In verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, what do you see immediately right there? He was led by the Spirit. Temptation is not sin. Sometimes God will have you face temptation so that you simply know what you want, who you are, and to face it down. And if you follow faithfully, to grow in Him, to glorify God. God is glorified when we resist temptation. And God wants to be glorified, so sometimes He's going to allow temptation into your life so you have the opportunity to glorify Him. So, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You ever notice the Bible has propensity for understatement? He was hungry. No kidding, he's almost dead. He is literally at the verge of starving to death physically. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Temptation at the point of identity. Jesus is the Son of God. That's who he is. He is divine in nature. And so what does he start every temptation with? If you're the Son of God. Do you, do you see the, the sneaky way he does this? The, the word in the Greek there can also mean sense. Well, since you're the Son of God, you can just see the guy, you know, just what's behind it. You know he does the same to you. Well, since you're whatever, since you're lonely, since you've been mistreated, I mean, he, he'll just come along and he just, he's sneaky. And he knows how to twist the situation so that we will be able to get an audience. He's like, you know what, you're right. But does Jesus entertain any of that? No. So he's tempted at his identity to do something that is in line or out of line. But I mean, it, it, it is within his ability. His identity of the son of God and his desire. What does Jesus want? Think about at this point, his ministry's just starting. Why did he come into the world? What does he want? Well, immediately he wants some food. He's starving to death. 40 days and 40 nights is almost death. The guy is hungry. 
And so you see this interesting cross where he tempts him at his point of identity as the son of God and what he can do there with the basic needs that he has as a man. Because this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. Jesus is both God and man at the same time, and he's fully both. Now, how that completely works, nobody knows, but you just have to believe that is what it is. And Satan knows this. He knows who he is. He knows he's both God and man, so he says, I'm going to hit you at both points. I'm going to tempt you to use your supernatural ability that you have as the Son of God in a selfish way for yourself. You ever notice Jesus never used his power for himself? Not once. Not once. It was always to heal somebody else. It was always, and he said, I don't do anything on my own. I do only what I see and hear the Father do. So he was in full submission to the Father at every point in his life. And so his physical desire is food. What is his spiritual desire? What does he want spiritually? He wants people to believe in him. He's starting a ministry where he's healing people and he's telling them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he says at hand, he's saying standing right in front of you, I am the kingdom of God. He wants people to believe in him. And then what is his purpose in life? To save the world, right? What did, what did Satan offer him? Food? Belief? You cast yourself off the temple in front of everybody that's there, thousands of people, and you start flying, it's going to cause something weird to happen. People are going to be like talking, right? If angels bear him up and he doesn't strike his foot on a stone, that, that, that might work. People might believe. So he offers that. And then his life desires, purpose for being. What was it? To save the world. What does Satan say? I'll give it all to you. I will give it all to you. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Now, how many of us think we could withstand that? I know I couldn't. You see, he faced temptation that was both at the point of him being the son of God and him being a human being. And this was an onslaught. Like, this was Satan himself. He didn't send demons. He didn't use the system. He didn't send, you know, some Roman soldier to come and just talk to him and try to goad him into something. You know it's a big deal when Satan himself shows up and says, I'll take this one. He's bringing everything he's got against Jesus. And none of these desires that Jesus had were bad in and of themselves. I want you to understand that. Was something wrong with Jesus for wanting food? Absolutely not. That's a natural desire after not eating for over a month. There has been no failure here. None. And too many of you, too many of us in the church, we, we look at ourselves for, for some of the ways we are and we, we allow Satan to condemn us because we want more friends in life. That's not a bad thing. Just don't violate the Christian faith getting them. But wanting to have healthy relationships in life, that's not a bad thing. Don't let Satan guilt you for wanting that. Just don't let him tempt you to go about it in a way that dishonors God. And so none of these desires are bad in and of themselves they're exactly what you would expect from a person who is hungry, who's sent from God, and who's on a mission to save the world. 
The problem was that everything he wanted was being offered outside of the will of God. Now, the great thing here is Jesus recognizes it. I want you to notice the difference in the subjective reasoning of Eve, and I'm going to throw Adam in there too, it's not just Eve, but she's the one who talks, it talks about her in scripture, uh, and the objective reasoning of Jesus. What did Eve do? It says she saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. What is that? That is rationalization. What is completely absent, we talked about this last week, but what's completely absent from her reasoning? The truth of, oh, when you eat it, you're going to die. God said that. That should settle it, right? I mean, your creator says, hey, you do this, you're going to die. But what does she do? She looks at everything else but the truth. What does Jesus do? He ignores everything else but the truth. He ignores it. He knows he's hungry. He doesn't care. His own desire right there does not give him license to do what he wants. Now understand, a temptation is only a temptation if you actually want it. Like I said, most people are not tempted right now to climb up on top of this building and jump off. That's not something you woke up with and you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to have a discussion about that. That's not a temptation because it's not a real desire. So I've heard, you know, some... Theologians and such talk, well, were these really temptations for Jesus? Yes, they were. Because it's at the core of what he wants and who he is. This is intense. But in pursuing those desires, he always defers to the truth of what God has said. And so what does he do? He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, I have something more important in life than my hunger, and that is the honor and glory of my Father, and I will do what he says, and he hasn't told me to do this. Next, he doesn't have a discussion about what kind of bread it could be. He doesn't have a discussion about how much bread. He doesn't look at it and say, you know, that stone's kind of shaped like bread. Maybe God won't notice. He doesn't do that. He just defers to, no, Here's the truth, so the answer is no. I won't do it. And after that, what does he say? Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan thinks he's getting sneaky, and he says, oh, we're going to quote Scripture? Okay, I'll quote Scripture. I'll twist it out of context. I will make it look like it's something you could do and still honor God. Now, this is the important one. He makes it look like it's something he could do and still honor God. This is where we have to know the scripture. And we got to know it well. Because what does Jesus do? Do you get in a theological debate with him? Well, I'm not sure that that, you know, when, when you look at the original Hebrew, I'm not sure that that's what that means. What does he do? He says, no, it's also written. What is the also? You're leaving some out, pal. Let's get to the full truth. You're you're twisting the truth. Let's get to the full truth. It's also written, don't put your Lord your God to the test. You know what that means? Don't devise artificial situations where you try to force God's hand. God is not impressed, and his hand will not be forced. In that situation, who's really God? You see, God, he knows, and he's not going to do it. And so Jesus just says, no, I'm not going to put him to the test. It's also written, don't do that. So next. And then Satan just goes for it, says, I'll give you everything. And notice he says, be gone, Satan, 
for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I think he was a little offended at the last one. I think he was. I think Satan, I, I think Satan crossed a line right there. <laughs> he knew temptation was coming, but when he offered the world and, oh, just worship me, I think that was so offensive to Jesus. He's like, yeah, we're done. I'm not even talking to you anymore. Where's your line in that in life? Yeah, we're done. That's it. Be gone, Satan. This conversation is going nowhere and we're not doing it. You see, Jesus focuses on the truth and he doesn't think about anything else. Eve looked at everything else she could in the world to convince herself it was okay. Jesus looked for one reason, the word of God, the truth, that told him no, and that was enough. No more. The discussion is over. Now, here's what I want you to get out of this one thing. It wasn't some kind of magical formula quoting Scripture to make the desire. His desires did not change. When this temptation was over, guess what? He was still hungry. He still wanted people to believe in him. And he still was on a mission to save the world. The desires didn't change. His identity didn't change. This was not a magic moment where he just quoted a scripture and it like, poof, made everything better. He quoted the scripture because that was the foundation of his belief system that did not allow him to fall for the deception. And so I know people, they're like, I quote scripture all the time and I just can't get it under control. I'm like, well, because you're, you're treating it like a magic incantation that if I just say the words, it'll just go away. You know what? Satan is not afraid of scripture, okay? I hear people say that sometimes. Oh, you start quoting your Bible, Satan starts running. No, it's, he knows this thing better than you do. And he will twist it and he will use it. He is not afraid of the words of scripture. You know who he is afraid of? God. And he knows when we will follow God in faith, he can't touch us. It's our obedience to the word that he tries to trip us up. Now, if he can keep you ignorant of the word, he will. I mean, if he can keep you from ever learning it, you know, he knows there's danger there. When we learn the word of God, we get to know God. We start following God. We start loving God more. But he's not afraid of the words of scripture. You can quote that to him all day and he'll be like, yeah, what does that mean? Let's have a discussion about what it means. I bet I can twist it and confuse you. So what did Jesus do? He used the most simple scriptures that there were. He's like, hey, turn these stones to bread. Oh, no, the, the scripture says you don't live by bread, but by the word of God. So show me in the word of God where it says that I can do this, and then we'll talk. And he meant, it, it wasn't frightening. It's just like, nope, we just shut this down because the word said no. And so today, what do you have? You have Satan as always. Remember, he starts the conversation. Did God really? He wants to get you to question the word of God. He wants to get you to question the truth. Did God really just make a male and female? Yeah, it says right here, God made them male and female. End of discussion. Did God really say he hates divorce? Yeah, he did, right here. End of discussion. Did God really, I mean, it's just over and over. Did God really, did God really? If we know the word of God, we can learn from our own temptations of where our weaknesses are, of what our true desires are, which sometimes can be very depressing. 
I mean, it can. It can be rough when we, when we own our own temptations and you're like, you know what, this is only a temptation because I want it. And we can convince ourselves and deceive ourselves in our mind over and over that I really don't want it, but our heart is like, oh, but I do. And so we have the fight until we finally are like, God, I want the wrong thing in life. And God's like, yeah, you do. And you're like, God, change my desire. I admit that my desires are wrong. So change them. Bring them into line with your word and you read the word and you find out what does God want us to desire and we, and we push ourselves into that. And you know what the great news is? We can change. Who in here can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know God has changed your desires in life? Come on, let's get a witness. Come on. I mean, yeah, you know it. You can look back and you're like, man, that was a dark period. I'm not like that anymore. And then you look and you're like, I didn't change it. God changed it. But did you have a role in it? Yeah, I had to submit to God. I had to admit that my desires were offline. I had to admit that it's my problem. I had to confess to God that I wanted something more than Him. And we can learn from those temptations. Just, and then we can overcome those temptations just like Jesus did. And so what do we do with this? Know yourself and know the scriptures. Know yourself and know your scripture. Look, you're not perfect. If no one's ever told you that, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You're not perfect. Which means you have blind spots. Which means you have desires in your heart that are contrary to the word of God, to the, the holiness of God. Now, is that a reason to despair? No, because Jesus died. That's what his grace covers. That's the whole point. And he's like, I know you're messed up. I'll heal you. Now, are we ever going to be perfect this side of heaven? No. That's why we depend on God's grace every single day. We just keep coming back to him. You're like, God, just here are my desires. Here they are, God. Conform them to your will. Even if it's painful, God, conform them to your will. And we walk with him in faith over and over. Russell Moore, uh, a Southern Baptist leader, put it this way. He says, you will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. I know better, I'm entitled to, I can handle it. Look, the surest way to lose any temptation is when we get the sentiment inside, I can handle it. You've lost. Satan's already won. It's just a matter of time before, you know, he, he strikes. You know why? Because Satan's been defeating man since when? Chapter 3 of Genesis. <laughs> now look, we're all the way over here in Matthew and it finally is Jesus, the ones that's like, no, no, really no, get out of here. He will beat you. you can't, you're not smart enough, you're not spiritual enough, your faith isn't strong enough. Look, he will beat you on your own. You can't handle it. So don't engage him on his terms. 
I've had too many people in my life as a pastor that's like, oh, I, just, I rebuke Satan every day. I rebuke him and I do this. And, 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 and they just believe Satan's behind every corner waiting to get him. And you're like, I just, I come against it and I speak against it. And I'm like, why are you giving the enemy so much of your attention? Don't do that. Just, just follow God. Like give faithfulness to God that much attention. And guess what? Here's the, the great thing is that temptation is even regulated. How many of you know this? Listen to this verse. This is a verse that gets so quoted out of context and twisted, that, and I really believe it's because Satan doesn't want people to know it. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle? Right? How many of you like live by that? You know that's not what the scripture says. God will totally give you more than you can handle. Okay, he will. He'll do it on purpose. That's not what he's not saying that, you, you know, all of this. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Well, that's really different from won't give you more than you can handle. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I don't know whether to rejoice or cry at this verse. And I mean that. I don't know whether to rejoice or cry. Because that means every failure in my life is truly my fault. 100%. Why? Because he says you are strong enough to handle the temptations in your life. Why? Because God's going to regulate it so that it's not more than you can handle. Now, I thought, you know, like, Pastor, you just said I couldn't handle it without his help. You have to make the choice, am I going to be faithful to God or am I going to follow my own desires? When you make the choice to be faithful to God, God is going to be there, and he's like, here's how you get through this. Here's your way of escape. Here's what you have to do. And now how does Jesus know that? Because he endured every single temptation you have and won. You ever had somebody give you advice that you know like they have no idea what they're talking about? Well, if I were you, I'd do this. And you're like, yeah, you're not. Haven't you declared bankruptcy like four times and you're telling me what to do with money? No. See, Jesus isn't that guy. He overcame every single one of them. So when it says he'll give you a way of escape, he's telling you, I will get you through it. So that whole devil made me do it. Not only did he not make you do it, God limited his ability to tempt you so that it wouldn't be more than you could handle. You know what that means? That means we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves when we think we can't handle it. That's it. We lie to ourselves. Because the word here says we can. And then we even have this bigger promise. And James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Say it louder. Flee from you. So you're not going to be tempted beyond what you can handle. And if you submit yourself to God and you're faithful, what's going to happen? Satan be gone. This conversation's over. So if you struggle and you just stay in this place of struggle, guess what? It means you're not submitting yourself to God. 
That means you're actually entertaining this idea rather than focusing on the word of God. And so there should be this moment of freedom that we all have from these verses of like, I can win this. I don't have to fail. Through the Spirit of God, I can do this. And so here's the road to redemption as Jesus set this all in motion. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He stared down Satan and he faced temptation that was more fierce than anything we can imagine. And he won. And you know why he won? Because he submitted himself to God in everything. And next week, on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about just what that means. What it means to be in Christ and to know the victory. Because we're not there yet. This is just Jesus' victory. But here's, here's a glimpse. Jesus' victory becomes our victory. And that's why he did it. That's why he did it. Because he, look, he knew he could win. He didn't want to come here and just like, look, I'll show you guys how it's done. And then you guys figure it out. That's not what he was doing. He was winning a victory that he could literally transfer to us. And place on top of us and say, my victory is your victory. And so I want you to listen to this verse again. We started with it. I hope it has a little more impact and meaning now after this sermon. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When we are born, we are all represented by Adam and partake in his failure. But when we are born again, we are represented by Christ and partake in his victory over temptation. Choose wisely.